So today's scripture reading is much longer than usual, but bear with me. And so today's scripture reading is from the book of Exodus. And it is actually a real piece of cinema. Um, I think everyone who has come across Christianity will know this scene. Um, it's very much written, directed, and performed by God. And so let's enjoy this um, by turning to Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 to 31. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible version. So once again, Exodus 14, 10 to 31. This is the word of God. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they will go in after them and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going in front of the Israelite forces moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and Israelite forces. There was cloud and darkness, it lit up the night, and neither group came near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. The Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and, his, and in his servant Moses.
good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning. As Christine mentioned, um, we at New Life, we just came back from our winter conference. And so it, it's always a, a real pleasure uh, when we're able to get away. I say always, and we've only had two years uh, since COVID of doing this. Um, but for me as well, I was uh, really looking forward to being back with you guys. Um, I don't know if you guys felt the same way as well, those of you who were with us at WinterCon, uh, maybe just experiencing singing together, uh, like what our praise team mentioned. Uh, you really wanted to experience that again. Hopefully, uh, I wasn't the only one. Um, I tend to uh, try to keep my voice, you know, because um, I don't have a very strong voice to keep preaching uh, for a long time. And so I try not to sing too loud, but um, that last song, you know, Sinking Deep, there's uh, something about it where you just can't help but singing uh, along with the praise team. Uh, I don't know if you guys feel the same way as well. But, you know, maybe we should... Maybe we should ban that song so I don't lose my voice in the future. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, we'll see. All right. Um, my name is Young, pastor here at New Life. Uh, we are today going into a very short mini-series on baptism. Okay, I've mentioned uh, a few weeks uh, in the past that we are going into this baptism series. Um, it's very, very short compared to most of our sermon series. Um, it's this week and next week, and then we have our baptism series, uh, baptism service, I should say, uh, the week after that on the first Sunday of August. Um, I know as well today quite a number of people are away sick, um, maybe from WinterCon or from whatever else. Uh, if you're one of those people getting baptized, you know, maybe try not to breathe in other people's sickness as much as you can. Uh, take your vitamin C, wear a mask, whatever you have to do. Now, uh, last year, if you weren't with us, we did a much more in-depth series on baptism. It went for about seven weeks. It was titled, I Promise. Um, it's still there on our YouTube page. You can track it down uh, through podcast as well. Uh, now, both this year's mini-series and last year's bigger series will give a little bit of greater context uh, to the act that we're going to participate in together uh, on the 6th of August. Um, so, you know, I guess my suggestion is uh, try to look into that, and you'll get a bit of an idea of what we're doing uh, when we do the baptism together. Now, how about I pray for us, and then we'll get into the sermon for today. Uh, Father, we look to you, and we look to uh, the expression on your face when we come together, God, because we want to know that we are accepted by you, that we're loved by you, and that we have nothing to fear in you, God. You truly have a great love for us, and it's because of your kindness that we come together, God. Indeed, we have a revelation, just as we sang together, and it is Christ Jesus crucified. When we look upon him hanging upon the cross, we know, Lord, that there's no God like you. Who would give his only son in exchange for people like us? And yet when we look upon the cross, we don't see a man crucified any longer, but we see the empty cross and we see the empty grave and we know, Lord, that we rise with him again in the resurrection. We want this to color everything that we see, not only today in our sermon, but all throughout the rest of our lives as well, God. Help us to understand what redemption looks like. Help us, Lord, to know what it is that you're doing when you resurrect us when you give us eternal life with you, and indeed you give us a new life that we can live with you now. Would you be with us throughout the service? 
Would you illuminate the word that comes to us from Exodus, and would you help us, Lord, to understand what it is that you have for us in the baptism, whether it is us getting baptized, whether it's our friends, whether it's us getting confirmed, or whether it's someone we don't really know that well here at church. Whatever it might be, Lord, help us to participate together in what you have for us, God. We receive your grace this morning, and we want more of your grace, God. Would you help us to receive it now? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, have you ever uh, looked into deep water, um, let's, let's say lakes, oceans, whatever it might be, and felt this intense fear in the pit of your stomach? Yeah, I don't know if you feel this from you know, the image that you see on screen now or you know, whatever it might be, but there's a word for this. Uh, there's a word, uh, thalassophobia. I don't know if you've ever heard of this word. It's a fear of deep bodies of water like lakes, oceans, you know, anything like this, like the sea. And for me, when I look at certain images of really deep water and things associated with that deep water, I get this kind of sinking feeling in my guts. You know, something inside me feels like when you go up and down a roller coaster or, you know, something. You know, I don't feel too good. Or when I see a certain scene in, in movies like uh, Interstellar, where there's like this giant wall of water coming towards the protagonist, I feel that feeling. And I don't feel too good. This image isn't a mistake, by the way. Like, I know it's a cup of tea. You know, you can look at that. I spent a very long time looking for images that convey thalassophobia, and then you know, I felt a little bit uncomfortable, and so I decided not to give that to you. And I thought a cup of tea might be okay. Um, maybe, you know, maybe Jerry will disagree. She made like 1,000 liters of tea uh, at WinterCon for us. But thalassophobia, it might be the fear that comes from just how big and empty and deep the ocean can get. Or it might be because of you have this fear of the unknown, fear of sea creatures that might be residing beneath the surface, just waiting I don't know, to take a bite out of you or whatever it might be when you think about going to the beach. Or you know, you're just afraid of being really far from land and safety, and these giant creatures, why are they so big? You know, you wonder these things. But this is something that's maybe built inside of us. You know, I don't think this is a rarity. I think a lot of people share this discomfort because the beginnings of creation, even in the Bible, show this type of vast emptiness as chaotic waters. In Genesis 1, it reads this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the first line of the Bible. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now I'm a very uh, visual, imaginative person, and so I, I like to place myself what we're reading. You know, I like to place myself right in the middle of these things. I imagine like falling into this, it's terrifying. You know, in order for the rest of God's creation to be able to grow and flourish, something had to happen. God had to continue in his work of creation. The waters had to be brought under his control because it was covered over in pitch darkness. Like literally no light is anywhere. And so it's covering over these things. You would sink if you were there, down and down into this bottomless pit, into your watery grave. And so God continues. He creates dry land. The chaotic waters are pushed off into the seas. But the waters, they remain a dangerous place. They're not to be trifled with. You know, like, so the imagery of water in the Bible, as we read through the rest of the Bible, 
often carries with it this undercurrent of chaos and danger. There's something very chaotic and dangerous about water as we read about it. Now, along with the creation of heavens and the earth in the first chapter of Genesis, the very next chapter, there's a parallel account about the creation of man. The man of dust as a counterpart to the dry land that God creates out of the sea. And then there's this great harmony and peace as man comes about on this earth. Everything's looking good. Humanity tends the well-watered garden, and we read about this. The garden is watered by a river running through Eden. In verses 10 to 14 of Genesis 2, a river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedellium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. And we learn that the river flows out of Eden, and then as it exits Eden, it splits. It divides into four other rivers, much like man. Humanity is going to soon be forced out of the garden sanctuary after betraying God, and there's division where there was formerly this unity between God and man. There was this peace and this harmony that God and man shared together until the betrayal, and now there's going to be division between God and man, and not only God and man, but division between all of humanity, and now in us as well. We see this throughout the earth. There's the same deadly chaos that we once saw in just the deep, dark waters below, but now it's in us. In reaching for what's off limits, in clamoring and fighting and waging wars on one another so that we can have something, we actively decreate what God once created. We do the opposite of what God did in bringing life by bringing death. And we take ourselves back into the chaos that existed before there seems to be no end to our sin, and so we sink deeper and deeper into the bottomless pit of the chaotic waters of sin. Now today, I think it's a little bit harder to you know, look at this type of imagery and just try to imagine just what went on through ancient people's minds, people that didn't have planes that could go over waters, people that didn't have ships like cruise ships like we do that just you know, cut through the waters, leave all our pollution behind, whatever it might be. But at that time, they didn't have super reliable ways of getting across. For us, when we're living here in Sydney, I'm sure, like, when we think about waters, we think about the beach. You know, we think about having fun. We think about how we have great ways to get across great depths of water safely. But even in the modern day, sometimes, I think we look out at the ocean, and when do we do this? When do we go and by ourselves to look out at the ocean? It might just be me, okay? Might, hopefully it's not just me, but it's when our minds are cluttered, when they're disorganized, when we're struggling through things, especially when we have brokenness in our relationships with others. You know, thankfully I don't do this anymore. She's not, she's not listening, but like, thankfully, uh, I don't do this anymore, but I know in the past, I have done this in other relationships with other people where there's brokenness and I just go out and look at the ocean. I'm looking at these choppy waves, you know, going back and forth. There's this unpredictability. 
this wildness. And it seems to speak about my own inner self. Like I feel this kinship with the, the chaos that's there. And maybe in this passage, in Exodus, that Christine read to us, this might be what the Israelites are feeling as well as they look out at the sea. They look out in front of them, they see the ocean, or they see the sea in front of them, they feel hopeless. They feel like there's nothing. And they feel like there's just chaos. Now, to give a little bit of context, up until this point, God has spoken to Moses, and Moses has relayed all of the promises of God to the Israelites. He's told them everything that God had to tell them. And this is after everything they also witnessed in Egypt. Okay? If you're at all familiar with the story of the Bible, God's divine actions brought plague upon plague on Egypt and not on Israel so that he set in course the salvation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And everyone's witnessed this, but now Pharaoh has pursued them along with hundreds, thousands of chariots. And you can imagine these former slaves are escaping from their former masters and they look behind them. There's this approaching army. The Israelites, they seem to lose all memory of the promises that were just made. Trust goes out the window for the Israelites when earthly evidence comes into the picture. But this trust is the basis for our faith. And it's the basis for our baptism as well. Back a few months ago in April, we were going through our first Corinthians series, which was definitely a much longer series than our current one. We talked about this type of trust in this sermon uh, titled, Why Try If We Just Die? Where we saw baptism on account of the witness of the righteous dead. We talked about this. Paul wrote about this to the Corinthians. But what power would this witness have if our trust just crumbles when we witness earthly evidence that contradicts our faith? What will be the point of this witness? Isn't it supposed to be the other way around? Shouldn't it be that our faith exists even in the face of contradiction and paradox? Otherwise, why is it faith? Salvation belongs to our God. It's only by His grace that we can be saved. We talk about this when we talk each week, week in, week out, about new life being a place where we meet together for the glory of God and the gospel of grace. This is why we come together. This is why we meet. We talk about grace. And so the grace that we need to live out this life for Christ can only be found in God. And so in our baptism, we trust him to carry out the promises. On our part, we seek him for the strength the conviction, and the change that we need in order to live this Christian life. But in this Christian life, if you're anything like me, we have our own thoughts about how things should work. We like to tell God, this is how you should be doing things. We pray to him and we say, this is how I want you to work things out in my family. This is when you should bring my friends to faith. Sometimes we think that if discipline seems a little bit difficult, we mistakenly believe that it's not for us. We like to live free. We like to live an undisciplined life. Or we decide that we're too busy. 
or we even struggle with the thought that we might not really be saved. Otherwise, why is it so hard? Or like the Israelites, if we experience suffering of any sort, we start questioning things. We might be prone to believing that God doesn't really love us, that we might have faith for nothing, or that his promises have failed. What's immediately in front of our eyes often wins against what's invisible. The Egyptians are approaching with this giant army towards the Israelites, and the Israelites, they start thinking, maybe the promises of God meant that Pharaoh wouldn't even follow them. Like, why why are they here? Why did the pursuit not fail before it reached their doorstep? They were definitely uncomfortable with the idea that the army would make it all the way to their camp. You have to understand how helpless these Israelites are. They're leaving Egypt. It's not like Pharaoh and his army are like, please, take these horses and these chariots and all these weapons. But they leave former slaves coming up unarmed against this army. They're untrained, unlike these soldiers. And they're trapped with the Egyptian chariots behind them and in these chaotic waters in front of them. It's to the point that they'd even forget about the bitter years of enslavement that they endured. Exodus 14, 12 reads this. Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. In our lives, when there's hardship, suddenly, even the misery of the past gets seen through rose-tinted glasses. You know, we look at the past and we wish that we were back there again. We talk about the good old days. And this isn't unique to the Israelites. We do this today. Even when we talk about faith, oftentimes we talk about the good old days of faith. And we think, what are we actually implying here? That God's not here now to take care of us now, to take us deeper than we've ever known. Today is what matters. The Israelites, they don't believe that God will rescue them now, but Moses believes. Read with me, verses 13 to 14. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. This is the faithful witness of the righteous. Like the kind that we talk about from 1 Corinthians, like the kind that our baptism points to as well. God is their hope. Whom then shall they fear? Moses knows a plan straight from God's mouth, and so he can point to it. He can point out that no matter how stacked the odds look, victory is theirs. It's assured. Now for us, we can't plan it. God's timing and his will, his decision-making are his alone. We know this. We know the way that we live out our lives. We know where we're headed, or rather we don't. We don't fully know where we're going to end up. 
We can't control how things turn out, no matter how noble or selfless or whatever it might be, our own version of things and how they should go. We pray and we pray, but at the end of the day, it's God's will. But his will, straight from his mouth, we can read about this on the pages of scripture as well. We read about this in the Bible for people with the word that victory over death and the resurrection will come. We will have victory. There's no doubt about it. There's eternal security and life with God. We see it in the rest of the chapter as well, verses 15 to 31. I won't go through them right now. It's an absolutely incredible account of divine salvation through the chaotic waters. The Israelites cross on dry ground. We just talked about this in Genesis, the dry ground that pops up out of the chaotic waters. And then the chaotic waters swallow up the agents of chaos behind them, those that have murder in their minds. Now the implication of this for the Israelites who were delivered, if God could do this, this kind of thing to this army that's approaching them, that's far better equipped, far better trained, in a far more advantageous battle position, can be trusted with anything. Whatever happens in the future, he can be trusted. The Israelites that survived here, those that did not die when faced with death, join others like them. They join people like Noah and his family in the ark that didn't die in the face of death. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. We heard about them at Wintercon. There's this pattern of God bringing salvation through tremendous odds, through chaotic waters. And it leads all the way up to one that did die when faced with death. Of all the people that face death, Jesus is the only one who could save himself. He's the only one who had the ability, and yet he didn't. He's the only one who could rightfully make his own mind up about how things would go. But he chose to obey the Father instead. And he went to the cross and he died in our place. But just as in the baptism, where he sank deep into the waters of the Jordan, he rose again. And we too, when we get baptized into his death, we're baptized into his resurrection and life eternal. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see the ritual itself. Water is going to fall on the heads of those that are getting baptized in this act that we take part in, this act that we call baptism. And it signifies and it seals our adoption into Christ. This is the point of what we do. Our cleansing from sin. Our commitment to belong to the Lord and his church. When we see, we have a whole bunch of kids getting baptized this time as well. And as parents do this for their children, it signifies their adoption into Christ, the parents. Their desire for the children to be given into God's hands. Because there's a confession on the parents' part that we can't do it on our own. You know, some trust in horses and chariots or in the plans of humanity, but not us. Not us as Christians. We trust in God. In his limitless grace to carry our children through. 
We don't even trust in ourselves, but we say it's all up to God. The implication for us as we witness these things, like for the Israelites in the Exodus, is that whatever we face in this life, however difficult the circumstances of life get, whatever hardships we might face, our God can be trusted. And that's why we take part in this act together. When we see just how powerless we are against the chaotic waters of life, whether they're the fearsome forces of nature that we look out on, or even the more fearsome evil that men do, we hear about on the news, we see it in our own reflections. Worst of all, we often find those chaotic waters in our very own hearts. We, it mocks the faith that we like to think is like a rock that'll never get shaken. It tosses it to and fro like ocean waves, depending on circumstance, mood, and seemingly anything that comes our way. But thank God that it's not based on our own good faith. That's not the point of the baptism. That's not the point of our Christian lives. Thank God that it's not on our own works and our own strength, because we could never uphold the promises of baptism ourselves. The promises of baptism are God's to make and they're God's to keep as well. And so we go into the baptism in celebration together. We go in together celebrating what God has done. We mark our belonging to God's covenant people together. And so these chaotic waters become life-giving waters to us, just as they were for the Israelites who received salvation through the waters. As we receive the baptism, as we witness the baptizing of our friends, our family, and the children around us, it stands as a faithful witness to us. And we'll get to see that in the weeks to come. Why don't I pray for us? Father, we hear about these things and they stand as a righteous witness before us. We see the righteous go before us when they stand to be baptized, when they bring their children to be baptized, in all faith that it's you who holds the keys to salvation. We know, Lord, that the baptism itself has no power on its own, but it's the rite, it's the sacrament, it's the ritual that we look to you in. We look to you as the power behind the symbol. We look to you as the power behind our faith, the object of our faith, the object of our desire and our love. When we look at these people that stand before us, those that stand as righteous witness, whether they're the people that are gonna be baptized or confirmed, whether they're those that we read about in the Bible that trusted in you and that found salvation in you, we want that to be our own experience as well. We don't want to be people of great head knowledge. We don't want to be people of great heart emotions. But we want to be people that are wholly given over to you, that find peace, shalom in the pit of our hearts in the pit of our guts, in everything in our being. Let everything that breathes inside of us 
praise the Lord. We don't want it to be a one-day thing. We don't want it to be a Sunday thing. We don't want it to be a wintercon thing. We want it to be every moment of our lives that we turn back to you and we recognize you're a God of great promise and you're worthy of all of our trust. Would you create this trust inside of us? Would you help us, Lord, to give ourselves over to you, to receive your love and your grace, and in return, to love you and to love those around us and to welcome into the covenant family of faith all those that stand for the baptism. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Can I invite you all to stand as we sing our final song, Beneath the Waters? <laughs> 